Lord, we're so aware that uh, apart from you, nothing uplifting comes out of our mouth. So I just pray, Father, that you would use this time to bring honor and glory to your name, to the name of your son, Jesus. Lord, uh, we're, we're bereft without you. But in you, Lord, we have all things. We have understanding and we have joy and we have the peace of God. And we pray that the Spirit of God would just um, illuminate our darkness and open our hearts to receive your word, Lord, in its fullness. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I know this is not the norm, and hopefully it won't be the norm much longer for me, but is what it is right now. So I appreciate your indulgence. I'll let Bill finish playing with me. We're going to be in the fourth chapter of Luke. Charles Spurgeon, the um, famous preacher of the 19th century in England and London could be heard saying as he walked up each step of the pulpit that overlooked the congregation of the church he was at, they heard him say, I believe in the Holy Ghost. He said this on each step as he walked up to the pulpit because he was keenly aware that apart from the Holy Spirit, that his preaching was powerless. So he had to have the anointing, and so every step on the way up to the pulpit, he kept saying, I believe in the Holy Ghost. You know, in the earliest verses of Luke 4 that we looked at a few weeks ago, we saw that Jesus was full of the Spirit, and that he was led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted of the devil. And now in verse 14 of the same chapter, after the test was over and Satan departed from him for a season, we see Jesus beginning his public ministry. I want to read the uh, verses that we're going to be looking at, which are verses 14 through 30. This is in Luke 4. So if you would listen, please, to the word of God. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread throughout the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom... He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, 
to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard was done in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came upon the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Naaman, or Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they stood up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. Verses 14 and 15 that we just read tell us of Jesus' return to Galilee. And the news of his presence had spread throughout the whole region. His normal activity was to preach in the synagogue. And he drew near, he drew ever-increasing uh, ever crowds. Everyone had a positive attitude. There was no discouraging word said about him at this particular moment. But things began to change rapidly. Verse 16, again, reads, And he came to Nazareth where he has been brought up, and he was, as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read, as was his custom. This was something that was the norm for Jesus, going to the synagogue on the Sabbath and participating in the service and often being called on to deliver the sermon. Nazareth is where Jesus was brought up. As you were well aware, he was born in Bethlehem. Then he went to Egypt to get away from Herod. And then when his parents returned, they settled in Nazareth. Everybody knew him, and he knew most everybody because he was a child there. He was a teenager there. 
And in the brief description of the service we have of the earliest, this is the earliest scene we have in the Bible of a synagogue service in the New Testament era. And though it's not listed here, apparently the order of the service was the singing of a psalm, the reading of the Shema. The Shema is out of Deuteronomy 6. And the Shema that's in every service in the synagogue reads this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you this day shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, shall talk about them when you are out in your house and when you walk in the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. This is called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. So this is how the service started. And then after the Shema, then you had the reading of the law in Hebrew. And after the reading of the law in Hebrew, you had the translation in the Aramaic because very few people, the normal people, spoke or understood Hebrew anymore. They understood Aramaic. And so you had to have the original reading in Hebrew translated into Aramaic since the average person, or so the average person, could understand it. And next, the reading from the prophets. And then a sermon on the scripture. And finally, a standing blessing by the ruler of the synagogue. This was the order that was normally carried out in the synagogue during that period of time. Jesus was asked to read the scripture, and he gave the sermon. The scroll of the prophet was given to him, and Jesus read chapter 61, verse 1, and a part of verse 2. And then he sat down. The Jewish rabbis always interpreted this portion of Isaiah as referring to the Messiah. And the people in the synagogue were well aware of this. And when Jesus finished reading and he sat down, he gave them the shortest sermon ever on record. He said, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he stopped. There was nothing confusing about what Jesus said. He said, These words apply to me. And the word today is important. The people didn't doubt that God's kingdom would come someday. But Jesus said that day was now. Not in a future age, but now the captive power of sin is to be broken. 
communion with God is to be established and the will of God to be done today. It's interesting that in Luke's gospel, the first public word that Jesus utters as an adult, apart from reading scripture, is the word today. The time of God is today. The age of God's reign is here. Changes have come for those who have waited and hoped. This is the beginning of jubilee, a term associated with the year of God's favor. And saying that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus is referring back to the Spirit descending on him like a dove when he was baptized by John the Baptist. This is not just a prophetic anointing, but a messianic one as well. Jesus is not just the herald of salvation. He's the bringer of salvation. Jesus has been anointed to bring the good news, the gospel, to the poor. Anointed one means made me the Christ, the the Messiah. One Bible teacher says, When understood literally, this passage says the Christ is God's servant who will bring to reality the longing and the hope of the poor, the oppressed, and the imprisoned. He will also usher in the amnesty, the liberation, and the restoration associated with the proclamation of the year of Jubilee. The term Jubilee is explained mainly in the 25th chapter of the book of Leviticus, which is why many are not familiar with the term, because you don't normally find people sitting down to read the book of Leviticus. It's complicated, it's difficult, and it requires some effort. And most of us don't like to make a lot of effort, sadly. But anyway, that's where you find the term jubilee. First in the first six or seven verses of the 25th chapter, we're told God commanded a sabbatical year for his people Israel. That means every seventh year you were not to plant or harvest any crops in order to give the land rest. There are practical reasons for this, just like there are for crop rotation, but likely it was a lot more than that. More than likely, it was to teach the people faith in God, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Also, that the land belongs to God. All through scripture, you find that what we think we have, we really don't have. It's on loan to us from God. It doesn't really belong to us. It's God's. And when he took them into the, the people into the promised land, he divided the land among the tribes of Israel. And it was to be a perpetual caretaking task. The land didn't really belong to them. It was on lend from the Lord. If everything belongs to God, then so does the produce. 
So a law like this would also help curb selfishness because at the end of every seventh year, the land has to lie fallow. You can't plant any crops. Everybody's equal because you're not gaining any money from crops that you don't have. So the rich are not getting richer and the poor are not getting poorer. So it brings more of an equality during that period of time. The Jubilee year took place after seven sabbatical years. Remember, a sabbatical year is seven years long. At the end of the seventh year is when the land lies fallow. Jubilee is seven sabbatical years. So seven times seven is 49 years. The next year is the 50th year, the year of Jubilee. So what happens in the year of Jubilee? It's designed to bring many things back into their proper order. God had brought Israel to the promised land, like I say, and divided into the tribes. And so the land was almost theirs, but it really belonged to the Lord. And they were the caretakers and had no right to sell it away. What they could do was lease the land. Well, lease the land is not really the right term. What they could do was lease the crops that would grow on the land. And so that's what people would do. But at the end of the 50th year, everything reverted back to the original owner. So if you leased the land from me, how much were you going to pay for it? Well, it depends on how many years are left before Jubilee, because what you're leasing is the crop on the land. And if this 20 years before Jubilee, you only got 20 years of crops to reap the harvest from, to make your profit from. So you're not going to pay as much as if you had 30 years before Jubilee. So all of this worked out because you know at the 50th year, if you obey God's command, it's going to go back to the original owner. So this is the way it was designed. And not just that, not just the land, slaves, indentured servants, maybe is a better term. The indentured servant was freed at the year of Jubilee. So if you hired yourself out to a landowner to work on the property, then how much were you going to get paid and how long were you going to be indentured? It depends until when Jubilee comes up. Because at Jubilee, everything starts over. You're free, no more debt, all debts canceled, and then you start over again. Here's the problem. The period of law under Moses that began that was when debt began to accrue. But the next year, after Jubilee, then it started all over again. And debt began accruing again every year. So Jubilee was a reset. But then the process started over again. Another problem is there's widespread evidence 
that Jubilee, the, the keeping of Jubilee was not a frequent thing. Selfishness is against it. And so people didn't keep it that often. And even if when they did, they quickly gave it up. You can see an example of it in the book of Jeremiah. It's in the um, 34th chapter. The uh, Babylonians are besieging Jerusalem. And things are getting very dire for all the people in the city. So Jeremiah the prophet goes to King Zedekiah. And he says, these are the things that God's got against you. And one of the things is that you have not set the captives free like you were supposed to, like the law says. And so Zedekiah says, goes to the, they go to the nobles, and the nobles agree to set the slaves free. Well, about this time, the Babylonians get word of another problem, and they leave the siege. But the minute they leave the siege of Jerusalem, the nobles change their mind, and they take the slaves back again. And that doesn't work out well because the Babylonians come back again and Jerusalem falls. So selfishness rules against keeping God's law because it hits their curse. So for many reasons, and that's the big one, it it was not kept with any kind of consistency. But in Jesus, forgiveness and freedom and rest are forever. And that's why so many places call Jesus our jubilee. He's our permanent rest. He's our permanent forgiveness. He's our permanent freedom. It's not going to reset and start over again after a certain period of time where you have to be forgiven again. It's a once and for all. In verse 22... It says, all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? Commentaries are mixed in the way they view this. Some are saying, are seeing this as a positive statement and others as negative. Although in view of what comes afterwards, it appears negative to me. Because, and many of the people began to be enraged at Jesus at this point. Scripture doesn't say why, but the tradition says they became enraged at him because he didn't finish reading the Scripture. He stopped with the first part of verse 2. And the next part, out of Isaiah 61, that he does not read, that he sits down without finishing the quote. He says, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, the next sentence says, and the day of vengeance of our God. Well, the day of vengeance is not yet. And so Jesus does not read this portion of the scripture. He sits down. The vengeance of God comes later. Jesus didn't come to bring the vengeance of God at that time.
the statement, Is this not Joseph's son? seems to confirm the saying, Familiarity breeds contempt. They'd seen Jesus grow up, and in spite of the fact that they never saw him sin, that he spoke well of everyone, that he never offended anyone, that could not change the fact that they knew him. They knew his parents, they knew his brothers, they knew his sisters, and how could he be anything special? So in his hometown, where he grew up, they rejected him. The proverb spoken by Jesus in verse 23 seems to mean, Physician, heal yourself, do a miracle. Because the people wanted him to do miracles like those that the, like those they had heard he had done in Capernaum, but he would not. And notice they say, what we have heard you did, not what you did. They do not believe. People always seem to be more ready to see greatness in strangers than in those they know well. Prophets are not accepted in their own locality. We read verses 25 through 30 once again, in case we've forgotten. 25 through 30 says, But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three months and six, three years and six months, when a great famine came over the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, <clears throat> and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill in which their, their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through the midst, he went his way. Now the animosity comes blazing forth. The problem they have with Jesus is far deep, deeper than the fact that they know who he was growing up. They're resentful that Jesus had shown favor by doing mighty works to other places beyond Nazareth, and especially Capernaum, because Capernaum was said to have a heavy non-Jewish population. And Jesus defends his ministry to outsiders by offering two Old Testament stories, both Elijah out of 1 Kings and Elijah out of 2 Kings were prophets in Israel that took God's blessings to non-Jews. And even though these stories were in their own scriptures, they were intense in their hostility when hearing about it. To them, anyone who speaks of the blessing of the Gentiles instead of the Jews is a traitor. That's why they get enraged when they hear the stories about the prophets going to Gentiles and not to the Jews. Having to face a truth which you know and can't deny 
but don't like often brings out violence and rage, and that's what it did here. Verse 28 again says, And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. Israel should have understood and embraced Jesus' message. The Jews knew of God's grace toward all people as far back as the covenant with Abraham. The Jews and everyone else can read in Jonah of the captivity of everyone, of the capacity of everyone to be offended by God's grace toward all of those that we don't approve of. And we do that all the time. We look at people and we say, how could God do anything good for them? Because we don't approve of them. We are offended at God's grace because we don't like the person. Which speaks so highly of us, doesn't it? Jonah told God that the reason he did not want to preach to Nineveh was I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. St. Augustine said, They love truth when it enlightens them, but hate it when it accuses them. The synagogue was now a mob, and the mob attempts to stone Jesus. You know, hurling a person against stone was as acceptable a form of stoning as was, her, as was hurling the stones against the person. Um, if, if you read of people that have been to Nazareth and they describe the topography, there are hills there, but no cliffs, no places where you would throw somebody off and they would die from the fall. But they would get the stones below. And so here it, it amounts to stoning a person by throwing him off the hill. So the mob drove Jesus out of the city to a hill and intended to cast him down to the rocks below. But Jesus simply walked through them. Some feel like this was a miracle, though it wasn't the kind of miracle that we're looking for. As far as is known, Jesus never returned to Nazareth again. Rejection can be final. The difficulty I have with not with with scripture is that I have a tendency to go fast and I miss everything. And if I go slow, I get about one-tenth of the way I want to get because it takes me so long to say, now, what does this really mean? And to really look at it. And that's the case here. There's so much more to be uncovered in so many passages of Scripture that we lose when we race through it. We just It just goes in and over our head. So I would like to encourage everybody to spend time slowly reading Scripture and absorbing what it has to say. Some commentaries are good. Some commentaries are utterly worthless. 
And you have to read them to find out. But you don't have to read the whole thing to find out where they're coming from and whether or not they actually believe Scripture. So, just a word of encouragement. To study the Scripture. Don't, don't rely on somebody else to tell you what it says. But check it out and be sure that they're accurate in what they say. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that our eyes would be open and our hearts would be pliable and soft and ready to receive all that you say. That the word of God would be precious to us and we would handle it that way. So, Lord, help us to hear, to understand, to speak, and to believe. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.